clock is ticking, so I just wanted to make sure that you're all ready to go. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. It's a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For the such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this morning and the freedom we have to be able to meet here and to listen to the word of God. And Father, I pray that you be with me this morning, that as I attempt to, to share this word and this message with my brothers and sisters, and I pray that our hearts would all be open to your precious truths. I pray that we'll also be challenged to live more for you. Their lives will be transformed by this word today um, into the heart of your son. Lord, we pray that his name will be lifted up this morning as we pray this in his name. Amen. As I was growing up, I used to enjoy those, those series you'd find on TV where the story would be continued all the time. It never quite finished. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Especially the ones where there was a hero or some sort of uh, action, action uh, figure and, and he'd, he'd get by with some... He'd, sort of, he'd, he'd overcome a particular obstacle in the story but then right before the end of the series, right before the end of that particular show, something else would happen. He'd be diving in to rescue someone in the water or, or you know, someone had him you know, pinned up against the wall and they were going to do something nasty to him. And then it would say, to be continued. Stay tuned for the, for the, you know, the exciting episode next week of such and such and such. And you'd go, oh no, what's going to happen to him now? And you'd have to wait. So the story would be continued. And sometimes you'd have to wait. And they did it on purpose because... It was done like that, so you'd be in anticipation, wondering what was happening to this guy by next, you know, and it'd make you wait and be, you know, excited about what would happen. That's yeah, a bit like us at the moment. Have a thought about the, the Christian life? From the point of view, it, it's actually a, like a story to be continued still. It hasn't finished. There's no, there, we, we haven't got to the conclusion yet. We're actually, we're, we're almost there. But we're still waiting to see this, this dramatic and final conclusion to all things. So far we have the wonderful story of a saviour who came from heaven to save us. This is a wonderful story. I mean, it's, it is the grandest theme, the most wonderful story ever told. We have this, this saviour, we, we who, who rebelled against our, our God, we, uh, we turned away from him in rebellion, we, we went to our own, you know, to do our own thing. And God came to save us by sending his son. And that son died for us on a cross. And after three days, that wasn't the end of the story there, because after three days, or on three days, he actually rose again from the grave. And he defeated death. And then he ascended to be with his father. Right? That still wasn't the end of the story. Because now he's interceding for us, is he not? He's there as our high priest. And we can come before God this morning because he's there, sitting at the father's right hand. He watches over us. He, and even he, in a sense, is waiting for the consummation of all things. The final chapter of the story. At the moment, we are in a to-be-continued phase of the great story of this cosmos. We wait with great anticipation when our story, my story, your story, will be continued in heaven, will be continued in the next phase it will enter the next chapter when we shed our earthly tabernacle, when we shed this body of flesh. That's when we enter that next 
chapter in the story where we step from time into eternity where we step from mortal to immortality it'll be a time when we'll be at home with our saviour that's an exciting thing and something worth looking forward for well when we're going to be home in our celestial city the one that God's getting ready right now it will be by the looks of it one of God's grandest most beautiful creations the Bible says that he's made it for his children to inhabit forever today the theme for today's sermon is that city the theme is the holy city the holy Jerusalem which is perfect in every way and it's a city that's been specifically made for the ones that God calls his sanctified ones you see we're continuing with the theme of sanctification the ones that God calls separate to him the ones that God calls special the one that the ones who eagerly await for the day when they will see that city and their savior with their own eyes so I want to recap what we went through last sermon we learned a few weeks ago the term sanctification basically meant separated unto which describes what happens to a person when God saves them, redeems them for himself as a special possession. This is done to us, not by us. Just as our salvation is not achieved by us, sanctification is not achieved by us either. God does the sanctifying. We also saw that this separation is from the common things of the world to an exalted spiritual state. Remember we spoke about us being in a, already in a spiritual um, separated state from the rest of the world. And we began to look at what a separated or sanctified life actually looked like last time. And what a sanctified life from an eternal perspective does to our earthly perspective. How it should reveal itself. How it should look now rather than waiting for that next chapter. And we looked at a few aspects of it. And the first one we looked at was that a sanctified life is separate in its walk. Okay? In its lifestyle. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 13 says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Going to Jesus outside of the camp meant separating ourselves from the world, not walking the same way as the world, walking in a very different direction, looking very different. As Jesus took that path that took him to Calvary, the Christian has been called to walk that same path of reproach. In this way, we identify ourselves with him. He suffered reproach. He carried that cross. He was ridiculed and scorned and carried what was an instrument of execution for criminals and people that did not fit into society. The Bible teaches us that if we do the same, if we walk that same path, then we will undoubtedly suffer the same reproach, the same hatred, alienation, They hated Jesus and they still hate him. Because Jesus is, the Bible says, the light of the world. And when that light came down to the darkness of this world, he revealed the truth to man. Man didn't like the truth. It's not nice to see yourself sometimes as you really are. Because that truth exposed our sin. That truth exposed how evil and corrupt we actually were. And man finds it hard to accept it. As a Christian follows the Lord along that same path, the Bible says that Jesus shines his light through them. They become lights in the world. And guess what? The same light that people hated when Jesus came to this world, they still hate now. And I often wonder that when I share the gospel. When you look at the gospel, okay, and you look at and, you, and you, you share the gospel with someone and you're telling them, look, this is very different to what you've understood religion to be. 
Every religion you've understood means you have to work to get to heaven. Right? And you still don't know if you'll ever get there. But Christianity tells you something very different. That it was something that was already earned for you and something you just need to receive as a gift. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard for people to actually accept that? We have the, what would seem to be the easiest way to get saved. The most secure way. No one else offers, offers uh, uh, a system of religion or, or, a, or a process of salvation whereby people know they're saved. No, none of them do. Yet, we say, you can know. All of the other religions in the world say so you have to work to get to heaven. There's a hard slog ahead of you. Christianity says, just receive it as a gift. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard for people just to accept that message? Because the underlying truth is the thing that people find so hard to accept is that they are sinners that can't save themselves. And pride stops them from accepting that truth. Yes, it is the simplest of all ways to heaven. Because, but there's only one way, we know. But it's the simplest, the most gracious. It exalts God above everyone else. But you know something that it doesn't do? It doesn't exalt me. It doesn't lift me up. It doesn't say, you know something? There is some good in you that we can work with. There is something that you can do to get yourself to heaven. No, there's nothing. So I have to accept that. I have to wear that. I have to believe that I'm a sinner that can't save myself. The Bible says that we are different. We walk a different path to the people in this world. John 15, 18 says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The second point we saw was having uh, being sanctified meant that you were different in your companionship. Who you keep company with. In other words, spend the most time with, identify yourself with, want to be with. Just as we are to go outside the camp bearing his reproach, we've been called not to walk with those who are still inside the camp. Now, but does that mean we don't speak to them or communicate with them? No, because Paul says, if, that was, if you were not to keep company at all with people in the world, then we, God will have to bring us out of the world because we're surrounded by them. But the Bible says that we should not be seeking to live with them in their lifestyle, to identify ourselves with them, to be comfortable with them. We've been called not to walk with the world. We've also been called to not, not to walk with those who say they aren't in the world, but actually are. That's the more difficult one. Because if someone says, but I believe, I believe, and then does the exact opposite of what they say they believe, that's when we've got a choice of what to do. The Bible says to separate ourselves which is a difficult thing. I understand that. But the Bible also teaches that God has called us to judge sin within the church, that we are to judge sin within the church. Because God is judging the world outside, we are called to judge inside. The church will not be judged by God. Christ has already been judged for us. God, so we have been called to be separate in our companionships, not to keep company with people calling themselves Christians who are blatantly sinning. The next thing we are, we are separate in is our worship. Romans sixteen seventeen says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. You know what it says to do with them? Avoid them. Avoid people who teach contrary a doctrine that's contrary to, to what we have learned in the scriptures. That's a difficult thing again. Because at what stage do you do that? Do, does everyone agree on every point of doctrine? No, they don't. 
At what stage do you separate? Bible calls us, though, to be separate in our doctrine, to stand for God's word. If I believe something to be true in God's word, we had to stand for it and not align ourselves as a church with other churches who don't teach the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. This is why we don't fellowship with other churches who aren't of what we call like faith. Because when we do that, we actually promote false doctrine that they're teaching. Let's look at a bit let's look at now about the next verse that we're looking at in that passage, which says oops, sorry. Which says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Before we, we actually look at that, I want to just clarify something here. What is exactly the camp? What is the camp? When it says that we, we are to leave the camp or, or, or go outside the camp, what is the camp? And how is it equated to a city? A camp and a city, just in a basic sort of um, definition, are both earthly systems of civilization. Okay? They're both ways of organizing people to live together. They're designed to bring people together to live, work, and to prosper. The reason behind this is that why people get together in camps and in, uh, in cities is that there is safety in cities. There's security in cities and camps. You know, if, you were, if you were in the middle of the, like the Israelites were, and they would, they would be in their camp. You remember when they were, were travelling through the wilderness? God would set them up and they'd actually have to camp in a particular way. God actually told each tribe to, to camp out around the tabernacle in the middle. They would, the reason they would do that and not spread themselves out across all over the plains is for safety. Because if, if, a, if a, an invader came, he wouldn't be picking off one at a time. He'd have to meet the whole lot of them all at once. There is safety. There is security. And there is self-sufficiency in cities and camps. Because everything you need can be found in a city, can't it? It's harder to find things out in, in the country areas and in the wilderness. But you can find everything in the city. It's a place of comfort. I want to have a bit, a bit of a look at the history of cities. Look, go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Genesis 4.16 says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And that's the first time that the word city is actually mentioned in the Bible. That's the first mention of it. Is it a good mention? No, because Cain was a rebel against God. He had been sent out from God's presence. So what's one of the first things that Cain does for himself once he starts building a family? He builds a city. Actually, it was interesting, as I looked through the term city in the Old Testament, nearly all the references, at least in in Genesis, are negative. They're not actually positive, which is an interesting thing in itself. In Genesis 11, once again, we find people wanting to band together. Go to Genesis 11, chapter 4. Genesis 11, chapter 4 says, And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name this would be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. What had God commanded? Actually, he commanded them to spread out across the face of the whole earth. What did they do? They built themselves a city so they could stay together 
and there was safety, security, prosperity. And they said, let's build us a city so we can have a name. There's a fair bit of pride that goes along with that as well. So later God came down and scattered them anyway. (laughs) Confused their languages totally so they couldn't communicate with each other and they were forced to spread. They were forced to to separate from each other. Because you know what happens when people speak different languages, don't you? Discrimination. God knew. Go forward to chapter 13. Lot and Abraham had left their city. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was with him and they owned a whole lot of cattle and and things and people and servants and all this sort of stuff. And there wasn't enough room for both of them all in the same area. There were fights that were occurring between their, their servants as well. So Abraham said, let's separate here. You go one way, I'll go the other way. Pick whatever, whatever place you like, Lot. And the result of that was in verse 12 of 13. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. So while Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, Lot decided that his, that his lot was going to be close to the cities. So he lived on the fringes of those cities. Okay? Now get that. He first decided to live close to the cities. Why did he do that for? Well, maybe he could go into the cities and then get a lot of stuff that he did, couldn't get outside of them. Maybe he felt a bit more secure close to the cities. He could make an, an alignment with them. He could align himself with them. For if there was an invading army or, or the like, he could say, well, you know, if I'm part of the city, they see me as one of them, then I'll get protection. Look at, look at chapter 14, verse 12. Genesis 14, 12. And it says, And they took Lot, Abraham's uh, brother's son, who dwelt where? In Sodom. And his goods and departed. So at one stage he was living outside of Sodom, he was on the fringes. Where was he next? Within a chapter, he was in it. He was in Sodom, living as part of it. Now go forward to chapter 19. Look at verse 1. God was about to destroy Sodom because of its, its sin and iniquity. And it says, And there came two angels to Sodom at even. That's at evening. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Where was Lot? It says he was sitting in the gate. Well, do you know what the gate was? The gate was the government of that city. The gate represented the elders or the, the, the politicians of the city. So what was Lot? Lot was involved in judge, being a judge in the city. One of the most evil cities that you'd ever want to see. Lot was not just living on the fringe. He wasn't just living within it. He was actually part of the system. A place of respect. He had a place of honour. Amazing. The transformation within six chapters. We see in Lot and his predecessors an attraction to cities. Their safety, their security, their prosperity. They built their hopes in those cities. Security and safety that came from man rather than security and safety that came from God. Thus, when we look at this motivation from this perspective, we find that our safety, our security, our prosperity is not to be found in Melbourne not to be found in the systems of this world, not to be found in human government and human programs and earthly wisdom. But our safety, our security, our prosperity is found in a city to come. It's not to be found on the earth, for the earth and its system 
will fail, but heaven will endure. This is where our hope is. This is where our future is. This is another aspect of being sanctified. The sanctified person looks to heaven and understands that they must leave this earth because there is nothing for them here. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. I think the object of Paul here, as he was writing to the Hebrews, or the Hebrew Christians, was supposing that they would be actually driven out by persecution from the city of Jerusalem. That they were doomed almost to wander as exiles. He tells them that their Lord was led also from that city. He was also crucified outside of that city. That he was alienated from it. And they should be willing to go as well. In other words, he was saying, get ready, guys. Get ready to have your your faith tested. But heaven should be their vision, their goal, their hope, not this world. He was telling them that even though they may be stuck wandering in the middle of nowhere, with just the clothes on their back, that they should be, or they should count themselves as citizens of a new city, of a new kingdom. Which brings us to our first point of this particular, this particular uh, verse. That this place is not our home. This place is not our home. This place won't last. Christians must understand clearly that nothing in this life is ever permanent or certain. Nothing. What you think is permanent and certain here will always fail. There is nothing material in this world that you can count and, and be secure in. There is nothing. Because everything will fail. Nothing material, nothing physical. Nothing related to time or power, prosperity, with money. I mean, we see what's going on in, in Europe, for instance, at the moment. And I don't want to keep referring to that, but that's a basket case. It's absolutely amazing you have these, these leaders in Europe. Most of the countries in Europe are bankrupt. But yet they're playing, they're playing games with money. And, and you notice it's a day-by-day proposition. The, uh, the World Bank or whatever it is says, oh, we'll, we'll pump in an extra you know, $500 billion. And for a couple of days, everyone says, oh, whoopee, the stock markets go up. And then they realise another country is bankrupt. And everyone goes down again until someone else comes up with more cash that they invent out of nowhere. So it's this sort of thing. And they're just playing for time at the moment because eventually the whole thing will collapse. Europe, America, the whole lot. Now, if that collapses, the rest of the economies will collapse. We're, we feel very fortunate here in Australia because we are so far away from everyone else. But if Europe collapses and America goes down the drain, then we can forget about... Um, our prosperity here. Because no one will have any money to buy our iron and all the other stuff that we like to dig out of the ground and ship out. There is nothing in this world that offers us security and safety. Nothing. You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the assets in the world. You can have the best job in the world. You can do whatever you like. There is nothing secure. You may have it all. And you know something? The next day you may die. What are you going to do with all your money? Status, wealth, power. doesn't mean anything. Everyone dies just the same. Everyone gets sick just the same. Steve Jobs, one of the most richest men in the world, got cancer and he died. His riches couldn't help him. There is nothing... In our life, in this world, that is worth trusting or is going to give us security. The only thing that gives us eternal security, security now and forever, is our relationship to God. If we place our hope in this world, then we will be disappointed. But in contrast to Lot, we see Abraham. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Abraham was once again very different to his nephew. 
Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Did Abraham get what he, what he was promised? No. Even the land that God promised him on the earth, he didn't get. He reached it, but he lived there in tents. It wasn't his to do what he wanted with. There were other people living there. But it says in verse 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham realised it wasn't about the earthly, it was about the heavenly. And even though God had called him to do what he did and he was faithful in all those things, he realised that God had something much bigger in store for him. Now look at verse 13. What did all the Old Testament saints receive out of all the promises that they were given by God? Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. The Old Testament saints didn't receive their promises. God promised, but actually hadn't given it to them yet. They died with faith, seeing this promise afar off. And you know something? Jesus hadn't arrived. The promise was not yet born. Their saviour had not yet appeared. But things are very different for us than to the Old Testament saints. You might say, how's that? Why are we different to them? We haven't seen heaven. Isn't this thing afar off for us as well? Well, no. It's very different for us than with them. You see, we have seen the promise. The promise arrived. We know his name. We experienced his love. We know his grace. We know Jesus Christ. They didn't know him personally. They knew God and they were waiting for Jesus to come. But we have him as our special possession. We have the king of that country, the monarch of our, of our city that's waiting for us, already with us. And believe it or not, we've already arrived at the city. We've already arrived. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22. Hebrews 12.22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Did you, get, did you understand that? We are come to Mount Zion. We are come to Zion. We have come to the city of the living God. If you are saved today, you are already there. You are already a citizen. We don't need to wait to become a citizen of that country, of that city. We are already citizens. We have arrived home already, as it were. We have already had a taste of heaven. Because when the Holy Spirit came to live within our hearts, we've tasted the fruit. We've tasted what it's like. We know what other men don't know. Don't let this mortal appearance here deceive you. 
Don't let the fact that I'm getting older and falling apart deceive you. Don't let the fact that you're getting older and falling apart deceive you. We have already reached our destination. We now stand in the presence of angels. Do you believe that? We now stand in the presence of angels. We now stand within the assembly of the firstborn of Jesus Christ himself. We are already citizens of his country. We are his subjects. We are the inhabitants already of that city. Not sure about that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We, as citizens of God's kingdom, are receiving that kingdom today. You might say, how does that, how does that all work? Well, we're in the midst of it. We're in the midst of a, of a grand, let's say, celebration, ceremony. Some weddings, you might understand, take more than a day. Is that right? Some weddings take a whole week. If you go to, I think it's India. Eh? They have a wedding for a whole week. Now, we're in the middle of that wedding. You see, we are in the midst of God handing a kingdom across to us. You may not know it completely now, but this is it. We are in the midst of God doing this wonderful thing for us. We're still celebrating. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see, in God's mind, in God's eyes, we are already citizens of that kingdom. We are already in the midst of receiving that kingdom. In God's eyes, it's complete already. Even though our glorification from our, this temporal point of view, from our perspective, isn't complete yet, in God's eyes it's done. It's a done deal. Just as when a person who gets married in India starts off a celebration the first day, expect by the end of the week to actually have completed the ceremony and, st- and be married completely. So are we in that situation. How do you suppose, if this were not true, that we could fulfil the following... Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know, I don't know if, if, you, if, if it works in your mind, but sometimes when I pray, I picture myself before God's throne. In what sense am I before God's throne? I'm able to stand before God's throne just like the angels are able to come before God's throne. In what perspective? I don't know. But I see myself there, because the Bible says to come before God's throne boldly. How can I come before God's throne boldly if I'm not already saved, if I'm not already a citizen of his kingdom? Because he's my king. But not only that, not only does scripture say that we, and God's throne is in heaven, mind you, not here on the earth, it's in heaven. So I can approach, when I pray, I'm approaching God's throne in a spiritual, in a spiritual way, I'm actually approaching it in heaven. The next thing it says in Hebrews, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. Is this future, present or past? Ephesians 2.6 says, And hath raised us up together. Past, present or future? Past. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past, present or future? Past and present. It's existing now. He's made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now to be seated means we are already at rest in him. Our presence, in a sense, is already in heaven. We aren't there fully. Our eyes of flesh need to be replaced with spiritual eyes. My ears that hear on this world need to be replaced with spiritual ears. 
Our flesh, our body of flesh needs to be completely changed to a body that's fit for heaven. In order for me to walk the streets of heaven, I need a new body. In order for me to breathe the air of heaven, I need new lungs. In order for me to appreciate the beauty of the wonders and and glory of heaven, I need different eyes. And to hear the music of heaven, I need new ears. God says he's going to give me that. Because these ones don't see it just yet. But in a spiritual sense, I'm there. This is the difference between us and the Old Testament saints. This is the reason why we should have greater confidence walking out of that camp and walking toward Christ and bearing his reproach and being willing to suffer because we are already citizens of his kingdom. This is our confidence. This is our hope. This is the foundation of our walk in this earth. That we already exist. Our names are already there. Our citizenship is already secured. I know that if my earthly body fails in a moment, I'm going to find myself there. And Paul tells us exactly the same. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. And house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know. Not that we don't know. Not that we're hoping. Not that we're dreaming about it. We know. Because the day this earthly, this earthly shell falls away, it's when I get the new body. A body that's made fit for heaven. It's a bit like being born again. Or being born, as it were. First thing that a baby does when it is born, it takes in a breath of air. And what does it start doing? Starts crying. Okay? Hopefully you won't be crying as soon as you... Um... The Bible says that when this earthly shell is, is gone, the next moment I awake, I'm breathing my first breath in heaven. My lungs are going to be filled with the air of heaven. Isn't that a Wonderful. A wonderful thought. Let's continue. First Corinthians chapter two verse nine says this. Actually turn with me to First Corinthians chapter two verse nine. First Corinthians chapter two verse nine. It says But as it is written I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Isn't that a beautiful verse? You know, when we, that verse is often quoted. And it's true that our, our eyes, these eyes haven't seen, these ears haven't heard. My heart hasn't been able to contemplate what God is preparing for us in heaven. And it should be exciting enough, as it is, that we even just read a verse like that and say, Oh, How beautiful it must be. But look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. He has revealed them to us. Has he revealed them to you? This is what separates us from the world. This is what separates us from even the Old Testament saints in the sense that God has already given us a taste of heaven. He has revealed it to us because God's Spirit dwells within us. It's, we know it deep down in our spirit that this is true. That there's a place for me that's beyond my wildest expectations. That's beyond my greatest dreams. It's a place... A house with my name on it. A place where I will be secure and safe in God's care. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 verse 2. 
Revelation 21 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Isn't that amazing? That's what we have to look forward to. No more death. No more saying goodbye to loved ones who we see lowered into a grave. No more sorrow. The kind of of disappointments and trials and problems and and loss of of friends and families and, and persecutions and our own failures, all those will be gone. No more crying. No more need to despair. No more need to feel, where do I go from here? What do I do now? No more pain. No more need for hospitals, broken homes and broken hearts, broken bones. No more. No more tears. This is the sum of of our future hope. Every home now experiences either death, sorrow, crying, pain or tears in some fashion. You know, you can have the most happy home, but it's always tainted, isn't it? It's always something that that just, it's like that that fly in the ointment. that just ruins the the whole thing. And you can be happy, yes, because our happiness comes and our joy comes from knowing the Lord. But... It's always tainted by something. There's always something that you have to keep a handle on. A widely respected man known as Uncle Johnson died in Michigan at the age of 120. Seen a few things in his time, I imagine. He had a very cheerful outlook on life. And some people say that he lived that long because he was quite cheerful as a person and that characterised his life. One day while he was at work in his garden, he was singing songs of praise to God. And his pastor, who was passing by, looked over a fence and called, uh, Uncle Johnson, you seem very happy today. Yes, I was just thinking, said the old man. Thinking about what? Questioned his pastor. I was just thinking that if the crumbs of joy that fall from the master's table in this world are so good, the crumbs are so good, what will the great loaf be like? What will the great loaf of glory be like? I tell you, sir, there will be enough for everyone and some to spare up there. Now that's exactly where we are at the moment. Crumbs of, of, of glory and grace and joy fall from the master's table, but there's a huge loaf. There's a feast waiting for us up there. Let me close with this passage. Turn to John chapter 14, verse 1. John chapter 14 verse 1 says, and you know this passage well, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And where I am, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go you know, and the way you know. Jesus is preparing a place for us even now. A place made purposefully for us, each and every one of us. A place made purposefully for the sanctified of God, those who have already been separated to him. We have no reason to stay in the world. We have no reason to stay in this camp and to put our trust or our hopes in anything in here. Because that's where our hope, our future, our destiny is. We should have every confidence to go outside this camp, to leave it all behind and say, I don't need this. Now, am I saying that you can't have anything in life? No, you can have it. What I'm saying to you is don't trust it. Don't waste your time with it all. Don't spend your, your every, every moment in your life trying to secure it and, and to, and to mould it and to, and to keep it under control. Because in the end, it will all go. We know that those who are sanctified leave the camp. They have much reason to leave the camp. 
We can bear that reproach. We can bear the hatred of the world. We can bear all the suffering and the pain now because, you know something, it's all temporary. And it's all going to really be insignificant when you compare it to an eternity in our new home. We know that we have no enduring place here. Our heart should be in the place being prepared for us. And what's the path? Well, how do I get there? What path am I travelling down? Well, Jesus says, very plainly, and whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Well, some people have a bit of a problem with that. Because they say, well, what are you talking about? What way? Which way are you, you you're talking about? And Jesus gave the answer very clearly. The path is not a road. It's not a religion. It's not a process. It's not a creed. It's not about good works or self-sacrifice or giving every, everything you have away. To travel this path, you don't need to be smart. You don't need to be wealthy or successful. It isn't determined by your status, your heritage, your family or your church. It's not exclusive to a denomination or time-bound in any way. The path is Jesus Christ. He's the path. Jesus says, I am the way. That's as simple as that. He is the way. To be in him means you are already in heaven. That's what it means. Because he's in heaven already. That is the way. He is the way. Nothing more, nothing less. Any, any more you want to add to that, you simply confuse the matter. If you want to take something away from him, then once again, you're robbing him of his glory. Jesus says, I am the way. The only question that matters in this life today is, do I know him? Do I know him personally? Have I trusted him to save me? Do I believe that he keeps his promises? That's what really counts. This is the story of a Christian's life. This is the story of the new Jerusalem, of our new home, a place where we will be with him. This is what it's all about, where your heart is, where your treasure is, your heart is as well. Well, how much of a treasure is he to you today? How much do you value him over the things in this earth? Because you know something? If you value him less than the things of this earth, your heart will be bound to this earth. But if you value him above everything in this world, then your heart will be bound to him. Do you have a home prepared for you for sure? Have you openly trusted Christ to give you that future? Call upon him today if you haven't already. And if you've been distracted from him being your first love, your first priority your first heart's desire, then repent now and put him first where he rightfully belongs. Anything less means we're still stuck in the camp. God bless you.